Hello and welcome to the Healthcare Real Estate Advisor Podcast. I'm Joel Swider, and I'm an attorney with Hall Render, the nation's largest healthcare-focused law firm. I'm joined today by Vikas Sukari, Senior Managing Counsel at SSM Health. Vikas, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. SSM, as we'll hear in a moment, is a large health system with sophisticated legal and strategy departments. So today I'm excited to learn more and to share with our audience about how SSM handles its real estate as part of its larger M&A transaction and alignment strategy. To start, Vikas, could you give me a bit more background on SSM as a health system? Sure. So uh, SSM Health is a Catholic nonprofit health, health system. Uh, it was initially founded in 1877 by the Franciscan Sisters of Mary. Uh, they came from Germany to St. Louis in 1872. Um, their initial work was, uh, I think there was a smallpox epidemic going on in St. Louis. So they were really focused then on serving a very vulnerable community. Um, and that mission is uh persists through today. It's it's a large uh, part of our identity and our mission to serve the communities that we're in, uh, to be present for our communities and our patients. Um, it's exemplified in our mission statement, which is through the through our exceptional healthcare services, we reveal the healing presence of God. Uh, today, SSM has 40,000 employees, about 11,000 providers, and that's across uh, 23 hospitals and several medical groups that are regionalized in nature um, in Missouri, Southern Illinois, Oklahoma, and Wisconsin. So that's kind of our uh, health system in a nutshell. There's probably a lot more to say, but I think that encompasses a high-level overview of what we do. Yeah. So because how long have you been at SSM Health and what was your path to your current position there? Sure. So I've been at SSM for about seven and a half years. Um, I initially, oh, when I came to SSM, um, pro just immediately prior to that, I was working in the telecommunications industry um, in an alternative legal role, if you will. Um, there I was doing uh, leasing and land use work for uh, some of the tele telecommunications carriers, uh, like AT&T, Verizon, companies like that, um, doing uh, putting up uh, cell towers and rooftop installations. So it was real estate uh, work in a sense. Um, I was, that was in Chicago. I was actually, um, for personal reasons, trying to relocate to St. Louis. I was trying to be close to my now wife. Um, so when I was looking for other opportunities, I, I think I wanted to shift back more into a traditional legal role. Um, and I was, I, I saw that SSM was seeking an attorney specifically uh, to assist with uh, their commercial real estate matters, uh, commercial real estate contracts, leases and whatnot. Um, so to me, that seemed like a, a, a really uh, a very well aligned with what I was doing and a natural progression to what I was doing in the telecom industry. Um, it was, uh, you know, similar nature, but also uh, moving forward into the path of commercial real estate matters, which is something that I was, I was pretty interested in um, towards the end of law school and uh, through some other uh, uh, job opportunities I had in law school. So 
um, I really was interested in that opportunity and I came on to SSM and jumped right in and have really uh, flourished in that practice area and some others um, since I've been with SSM. That's neat because uh, I could have used your help the other day. I was helping a client um, review a cell tower um, access agreement uh, for for a hospital building. So I, I wish I would have had your expertise for that. Um, I mean, when, when you when you made that move, obviously you mentioned some geographic reasons, but was there any sort of fork in the road moment where you said, you know, this is this? I mean, obviously there are some parallels for sure. Um, on the real estate side, but were, was there any sort of fork in the road that made you realize that, you know, I want to move this direction with my career? Yeah, I think there was. So um, in my old uh, career, which, you know, I, I really did enjoy it. I really appreciated the the organization I worked with, the people I worked with, um, kind of a small business environment, um, which was nice, but I was getting more into the business side and less into the legal side of things. And I felt like maybe I wasn't um, using the skills that I wanted to use. So um, seeing this opportunity showed to me I could maybe use more of the legal side of things. Um, not to say, you know, today I do work, you know, extensively with our business people um, and still wear some of those hats, but I wanted to shift back more to, you know, the traditional legal type role. Um, so that was a big motivating factor for it. Sure. So, Vikas, your title is Senior Managing Counsel. What are your areas of oversight and expertise within the organization? So, uh, I, along with, I have two counterparts um, that uh, have the same role as me. Um, we oversee a team of six attorneys um, who manage uh, transactional work for the entire SSM health system, so across regions. Um, and our Work among other things, it primarily uh, involves the you know, development, drafting, negotiating of a variety of contracts, um, mostly physician contracts. Either whether those are um, with uh, individual employed physicians or independent contractors or uh, larger uh, medical groups that are hospital based. Um, also, other clinical service agreements, and then of course. Um, real estate arrangements, whether those are uh, leases or timeshares, uh, development matters, construction, um, purchase and sale of property, uh, among many other types of agreements. But that uh, really encompasses the bulk of what we do. And we're obviously, uh, you know, a large uh, focus of our work is to ensure compliance with federal healthcare regulations. So start getting any kickback. Um, Throughout that as well, in addition to actually you know, working on maybe new contracts or changes to contracts, we're also giving guidance on various uh, either uh, transactional general matters or uh, matters that are specific to a certain contract if a, a dispute arises or there's a question about interpretation. Um, we work with our business people to uh, give, our, give, give them advice and guide them to resolve any particular question or concern they might have. Well, thanks for that introduction, Vikas. And, and um, just to set out the goals for this particular episode, you know, SSM Health has been involved in a number of large transactions, at least the ones that have made the news in the recent years. I'm sure there have been many other smaller transactions as well. 
things like acquisitions of hospitals, acquisitions of physician groups, um, and a variety of other partnership and alignment transactions, plus all the day-to-day -day real estate management activities that are involved with running a health system. And obviously, each of these transactions and scenarios is unique, but our goal today, my goal is, is that we can try to uncover some common threads that our audience could apply more broadly when they're dealing with healthcare transactions in the future. So to that end, Vikas, um, could you give me an idea of what are some of the types of acquisitions and transactions that you've been involved with in recent years? So I've been involved with pretty much all the uh, varieties of acquisitions that SSM will undertake. Um, those can be um, as small in scale as those that involve, you know, I'll give, I'll give a couple of examples, you know, um, on one end of the spectrum, you have just a simple acquisition of uh, maybe some pieces of equipment from a physician practice, or uh, maybe we're acquiring medical records, um, or we're acquiring both, um, and that practice might be closing. Um, that's one flavor of acquisition, uh, no real estate considerations in a situation like that. Um, maybe the next level up is when you're uh, similarly acquiring assets, records, um, but maybe we're taking over a lease because the practice is closing. Um, that could be uh, a lease that that we're taking from a third party, or we may be leasing space from a physician who owned a building. I know I've done at least one of those where we had to enter into a new lease with that physician. Um, then similarly, we have situations where we acquire, you know, an entire business, uh, the practice itself, like the going concern of that practice. Um, and we kind of fold them in to one of our medical groups. We employ all their physicians. Um, you know, you might have a situation there where you're uh, assuming a lease again, or you could be assuming multiple leases, depending on the size of the group. Um, and then just kind of rising in scale from there are just they, they kind of look the same, but in, at least in concept, but then you could have larger acquisitions where you're uh, acquiring a practice or perhaps even another hospital um, or a large medical group. And then you're assuming multiple leases uh, and or acquiring real property that that practice or that other hospital might own. And then the complexity rises from there. So because in, in that, um, variety of transactions. I'd like to think through kind of what are some of the biggest challenges that you've faced and how we, you know, how you got through them, how, what we can learn from that. Maybe starting with the due diligence phase, what are some of the challenges that you face if there are, you know, if there are, to the extent there are common threads there, what are some of the challenges that you face in the due diligence phase of a, of a, a transaction like that? So I think for one, no matter the size, I guess even in a small transaction, we've got to figure out, you know, what what are what property or what lease could be involved in this acquisition. Um, if you're uh, we're acquiring uh, the practice or acquiring the assets or uh, of a of a small practice, um, do do they need us to take over a lease, or are we trying to take over space that they operate in? Is one question, and then if that is the case, that's the first question: is you know, do we do we have a need to uh, occupy this space that they were in? Um, 
you know, how do they own that space? Do we have to enter into a lease with that, the person we're acquiring it from? If not, um, who is the party that might own the space that we have to enter into a new lease with or assume the lease that the prior owner or the prior uh, owner of the practice, I should say, uh, held? <clears throat> and then along with that, if there's a third party landlord out there, we've got to figure out, you know, what is their status? Are they uh, implicated by our, our Stark and any kickback? Are they uh, a referral source in themselves or are they a larger, you know, some, they could be a lot of different possibilities. You could have it be this, uh, we could be entering into a, or assuming a lease from uh, a referral source, or it could be a commercial landlord, or it could be uh, one of our large institutional like REIT type landlords. Um, and the same becomes true even in a large transaction. You're just doing that at a at a greater magnitude. Instead of looking at one, you're looking at possibly 10 or 20, um, which obviously increases the amount of work you have to do up front to both figure out what's out there. I think once you figure out what's out there, the next question is, what do our business people who are you know managing this transaction or managing this acquisition, um, what do they want to take over? Um, so let's use the example of a larger transaction. If there's, let's say, 10, 10 locations, we've got to figure out, you know, what, what leases are involved and then uh, what are the terms of those leases. And, and by term, I actually mean uh, the duration, you know, how much time is left. Do we want to assume those leases or not? Um, what uh, compliance obligations do we have? What federal healthcare regulation compliance obligations do we have depending on those leases that we do intend to, to stay with? Um, we have to figure out what our termination rights are in case, you know, there's a different strategy about, you know, those spaces or maybe, um, you know, when you're acquiring so many, uh, there may be concerns of over time, maybe we want to reduce our space or consolidate that space that you know, this group or this other hospital was using with the existing space that we had. Um, so there's a lot to kind of wrap your arms around in the situation like that. And a lot of, uh, you know, thinking to be done for, uh, on the business side of things, which really is a combination of, you know, maybe the individuals who are leading the, the acquisition, um, who could be, uh, you know, the, they could be people on a strategy, like from a strict, looking at it from a st strategic standpoint. If they're not, you know, you want to have your strategic people involved to advise if, you know, this fits maybe in their vision. We need to get our facilities, our real estate team involved to figure out, you know, how does, how do these properties fit with um, their goals? And usually they're already aligned. I mean, in our case, they're, they're usually already uh, a cohesive vision about what they want. So it's not so much, um, you know, getting the people to talk so much, it's more about everyone being able to uh, understand what that vision is so we can accomplish it together. So Vikas, you mentioned um, at the outset, dealing with compliance concerns. Um, one question I have on that front is, suppose you're, you go through your due diligence and you find, okay, there's one or more concerns, um, let's say they're, you know, leases. How do you then work with the business team to determine, is this a risk we're willing to take? How do we isolate the risk? 
Um, maybe it's something so big that we wouldn't close if that issue is still open. Um, how do you kind of go through that analysis and the interplay between the legal function and the strategy function? So it, I think uh, it's helpful to think about what the, you know, what the downside could be or what the, what risk we're really talking about assuming. And that's that you, we could be acquiring a, a non-compliant um, lease. And I've seen it happen at least in cases where, uh, you know, maybe the prior uh, landlord tenant relationship didn't require the same, um, they have the, didn't have the same, uh, Starker and kickback implica implications. So I think up front we have to, you know, let's say we were acquiring a uh, a practice or acquiring another hospital, and then they had a lease with uh, either as landlord or tenant with a referral source. And and the first thing we'd want to see is, you know, how are, is this lease in itself compliant? Um, are is the rent fair market value? That's that's going to be probably the biggest. Um, thing to be paying attention for. Um, and if it, if it's not, or if it, we don't, we aren't able to, uh, obtain that confirmation, we have to let our business people know like, Hey, before we, you know, make this assignment effective, ideally, if that, if that implication came up or that there was a concern about being compliant, we'd want to make sure we, you know, get our fair market value, our new fair market value opinion, for example, initiated, um, to either support the rate or to uh, give us, you know, I, I guess a, a negotiation point to say, look, we, we're going to acquire uh, this practice. We're going to assume this lease with X landlord, and we need to make sure that the terms are compliant with Stark Grant and Kickback because of, you know, the nature of our organization and what our risk tolerance is, and making sure that you know uh, we can do that timely uh, before the uh, acquisition closes or before we would actually assume that lease. Um, and also, you know, you'll get pushback, I'm sure, at times. I, I don't have a particular instance to think of, but, you know, people are usually used to thinking, you know, things are done a certain We've always done it this way. And when you bring a new party in, we have to communicate, you know, we have a different tolerance for, um risk or different have a different um set of obligations you know the prior parties may not have had to comply with stark or any kickback for example so um we have to really communicate that and get the timing right um especially you know the timing is a i know we're going to probably talk more about that shortly but the timing is uh, an interesting uh, factor of it because in a let's say if it's a small transaction if you run into some real estate issues or some um, real estate uh, FMV issues, for example, you know, we can usually, well, we have, since it's like such a big part of the transaction and it might be a smaller transaction, you can, uh, you have more leverage, I guess, get that issue resolved before the acquisition closes, for example. In a very large acquisition, you know, the real estate's only part of it. So you're really under pressure to get this piece resolved so it doesn't delay the larger acquisition, which could have, you know, a lot of other moving parts. Real estate's just, you know, one part of it, and you don't want to jeopardize other aspects of it or um, hold up the rest of the deal um, to resolve, you know, this one component of it. But it's, it's still crucial, obviously, uh, 
to get these in hand because you don't want to end up with a bunch of compliance issues after you close either. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that's a great point, Vikas. And let's dive into that a little bit more because you mentioned the timing. Let's say that we've gotten through our due diligence phase. Everybody's good to go. We've got the green light. And there's a lot to be done between that time and, and the lead up to closing. What lessons learned or challenges are you facing during that period? So I think, um, you know, it, it's, there's a lot to essentially be done and, you know, you can break it out into a couple different areas. So one, you've got your, um, you know, your due diligence of what the, what leases are out there, um, what are our requirements in order to uh, assume those leases if we choose to. Um, and if there are like, let's say, let's say, for example, there's 10 leases, um, three of them are with referral sources, then we've got to make sure that we, you know, get all of our compliance matters in hand um, before the close date. Um, for the other ones, we just want to make sure they get signed by the close date. Um, and then on top of that, you may have other real estate matters like acquiring property. Um, and then that adds another le- level of uh, timing concerns. So if, if there is an acquisition of property involved, um, then we'll have to be doing our title work and our survey work and trying to make sure that aligns um, with the larger acquisitions close date. So we've got to really pay attention to the timelines and make sure that you know people are communicating not only um, you know from our business people and our real estate people um, talking to you know, the other parties or the other uh, I guess the other parties on the real estate side as well as the larger transaction side to make sure we can get all of our documentation in hand and complete all of our steps um, in advance. So um, you know in a like I mentioned earlier, in a um, let's say take the example of a, if there's an acquisition of land. I mean, in in a pure you know purchase or just purchase or sale of land, um, if there's some title issues that come up, uh, the parties might say you know we're we're not able to cure those, and then um, the purchaser has the ability to walk away, and they can make a you know, informed choice if they want to do that, weigh out the risks and either decide to proceed or not. You kind of lose that leverage in a larger transaction. Um, you don't have as much flexibility to say, you know, should we walk away from this deal? You're, you're, you've got to, of course, like if there's a major issue, it's got to be dealt with, but you have less of that leverage to say, well, you know, I'm walking away from it, whether you're, um, you know, using that as a negotiation tactic or tactic or if it's, uh, you know, the actual intention. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, the distinction that you raise between the pure real estate transaction versus real estate as a s- small part of a larger transaction, I can see how that would change some of your remedies um, or, or the leverage that you might have to get them to cure things. Mm-hmm. W- what other aspects, Vikas, should we be thinking about um, in terms of, you know, whether it's a large or small M&A transaction, um, what other themes or challenges do you see cropping up time and again? 
So this hasn't quite come up, but um, I could see how it would come up, for example. Um, so let's say there's an acquisition and um, there's a lease that uh, the acquiring party would be assuming. It could be with a landlord that they already have a relationship with, especially if it's a large um, like uh, like REIT type landlord. Um, there'd be a question there of like, does the lease that is being uh, assigned or that we're assuming, does it sync up with the deal terms we have with that landlord? Um, you know, if you've got uh, a negotiated lease or template that you work with, with a larger landlord, then you, you want to make sure that you get this, like you wouldn't maybe want to assume uh, another party's lease. You might want to rewrite that lease on your template, for example. So that's a consideration. And also, uh, in a situation like that, come to think of it, you know, those parties may um, want to keep, you know, if the if the rent's inconsistent, that would pose an issue, right? Uh, maybe it's we're paying rent um, at a nearby location that's been negotiated, it's been um, vetted um, either by fair market value or broker's value opinion, for example. We want to make sure those are consistent um, for a number of reasons. Um, another consideration is that. Um, you could be acquiring a lease that um, is essentially with another one of your system's um, entities. So if you've got now intercompany leases, there's a question of, are they needed? Um, in our case, we, we like to maintain intercompany leases because it's, it's a good way of for the parties to understand what's out there, um, just a, a good best practice. Um, but we'll want to make sure that you know, those are captured, especially if you've got a, a one, let's say one entity is nonprofit, the other is for profit, you definitely want to make sure that you have a lease um, in hand there. So that's another consideration. Um, in other cases, though, maybe uh, there's an intercompany relationship that's now being formed and a lease is no longer necessary. So that's a, a step to validate. Um, let's see. What about employment agreements? Because I mean, I, I feel like in the last couple of transactions I've worked on, we've had some issues there in terms of timing, you know, and well, you know, the, we, we need a, a go live date of January 1st, but the parties aren't ready to move on the, you know, asset acquisition side yet. How do we, have you come in, uh, uh, have you come upon any issues like that? Yeah. Yeah. And I think more, it's been, uh, luckily we've gotten them, We've gotten the timing lined up, but that that often can be actually in a smaller transaction, for example, uh, determinative of like the deadline, if you will. Um, you know, X physician needs to start or the, uh, you know, the practice we're acquiring, that physician needs to become our employee on a certain date, um, both because that, well, I guess the initial step is that, you know, there's certain paperwork, uh, I think like IRS paperwork that needs to be filed and other state paperwork that needs to be pretty precisely filed um, to change the employment status of that person. Um, we've got onboarding concerns, you know, uh, there's certain requirements you know, of, I guess, when someone would have to file their paperwork to show that they're an employee, you can't really, uh, I think you can push that out. I don't think you can pull it in. You can't, um, you know, backdate an I-9 believe. So um, that can have a pretty strong effect on like, what is our timeline? And it's also a matter for uh, 
you know, that practices patients, for example, if they're going to come over and join um, one of our medical groups, they've got to let their patients know, um, they've got to send a communication out, and you don't want to change that data a whole bunch because, you know, some of the steps that are needed to complete the deal are lagging or haven't haven't been addressed. Um, so it, it can, um, I guess another thing that comes up with employment arrangements too, that I kind of just recently was, recently was brought to my attention was uh, wanting to make sure that, you know, the, the, the terms of the employment agreement, if there is, if there are some, if there's one or multiple, um, we want to make sure that those terms are uh, compliant with fair market value on their own. Um, and that goodwill from the trans from the acquisition isn't, you know, being transferred through the employment agreement. Um, let's say, you know, we, you acquired some assets that all syncs up with your fair market value opinion. But if you give them an extra couple, couple thousand dollars in their employment agreement, that would, that would feel a little problematic. Um, it would be transferring, you know, the value that should have been captured in the asset acquisition, um, that maybe wasn't warranted and kind of putting in different buckets. So that's something to be mindful of too. So because these transactions, I know you may not be able to speak specifics on, on a given transaction, but a lot of these I could see being issues that arise on a large transaction, say. Um, are there distinctions, meaningful distinctions between a large transaction and a small transaction, or are they really equally complex, just you know, different purchase price? How do you compare those or you know, to the extent that that you know you're staffing, for example, um, on your team, you say, well, here are the expertise that the, the the various um, attorneys and and business leads that we need to be involved. Is it largely the same, or would it differ? I think it's uh, pretty similar in concept. There's a lot of the same moving parts, um, depending on the size of the transaction. I mean, I think um, in a small one, you still have to, you know. You've got to account for the the real estate, the employment matters, um, the equipment that might be involved. Um, you've got to get a lot of the same like type of paperwork or contract or document, um, a bill of sale. You've got to get all these same types of documents involved. Um, it's just the scale of it. You know, how many of those are you having to do? Um, if you require a small practice, you're doing, you know, one or two employment agreements. If you're acquiring another system, you might be doing, you know, hundreds of employment agreements and that, that's a, that's a heavy lift. So, um, I guess there could be other, uh, concerns depending on the size of the transaction, um, that are just necessarily going to be more complex with a larger, uh, health system, like, there may be third-party agreements, for example, like if they're if you're acquiring another another large practice or uh, another hospital, they might have other arrangements with um, you know other medical groups or other uh, healthcare entities or other businesses that are maybe not necessarily healthcare. Um, whether they're providing, I guess, whether they're providing or receiving the services. Uh, you'll see that more in a larger transaction, certainly, than you will in a smaller one, um, just because a larger entity is going to have a lot more third-party arrangements that they're offering um, to various parties. 
So Vikas, last question um, at sort of a macro level, and then I'd like to get into some some quick lightning round. But taking a step back and and just broadly speaking, how would you say SSM Health is able to leverage its real estate as part of its growth strategy? So I guess it depends. I mean, we're always trying to get access for our patients. That's uh, kind of lines up with that mission um, and what we're all about. So uh, the real estate allows us, you know, if we can, you know, acquire a practice, whether that's because, you know, that that person wants to close up or they want to become part of us, that allows us to maybe take over space that they're in or assume the space that they're in and provide greater access in certain areas. Um, we've been able to do that, um, especially, I mean, we, again, we, we operate in multiple um, areas. Um, some of our uh, regions have uh, are more metropolitan areas. Like for example, I mean, I'm here in St. Louis and a lot of our reach in St. Louis is uh, in the metropolitan area, but in other regions, we're in more rural areas. So that can have a pretty significant impact. Um, I would say it's less about maybe less about growth and more about that access. I think that's the the crucial part of it, and that's what I hear. You know, you 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 hear people uh, within the organization talking about and really valuing being able being able to um, provide services to more people. Well, because lightning round, um, a few questions about you personally. What's a fun fact from your childhood? I thought about this, and I thought about what would be interesting, and. I just looked around the room that I'm in and I came up with something good, which is that I used to actually be a pretty diligent comic book collector. Not so much these days, but I still have a bunch of them from when I was young and uh, trying to get my son into it a little bit, but we might have to wait a couple of years for that. Nice. Any, any great values that you're, uh, you know, you don't want anyone touching because they're worth so much money. No, nothing like that. You know, I used to have stuff like that and I didn't have the good sense to keep any of it. So nothing, nothing too valuable. <laughs> What's your sort of biggest struggle right now? You know, whether personally, professionally, what is it that you're kind of working on? So I guess one struggle is probably just, uh, you know, there, there's a lot that I've got to manage um, in my, in, in, for the breadth of what my role is, both as a manager and um, as counsel to my organization, so keeping keeping uh, everything prioritized, getting you know what needs to get done um, uh, the most efficiently. Um, but I think personally, um, my biggest struggle, and I would I would my biggest struggle personally, I think is. Um, you know, I get, I have a pretty good work-life balance and that's, um, I'm, I'm very fortunate for that. I'm really grateful for that. So with that, um, I, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but my struggle, I think is trying to be a really thoughtful parent, I think is something that I'm always trying to learn and my kids are getting older and they, um, I've got to kind of grow with them and learn what they need and, um, just try to uh, give them uh, what they need from a, you know, both mental and emotional standpoint, just be there for them and learn with them and spend time with them. Um, so not necessarily a struggle, but something that I, 
put forth a lot of effort into to try to be on top of. Yeah. Well, when you figure it out, let me know because I <laughs> I agree. It is very it's very. I'm guessing it's going to take about fifty more years. <laughs> right. Right. So, because uh, what's your favorite way to self educate? So, when it comes to just uh, you know maybe non legal or just uh, general topics, I mean, I guess I'm more lately because I think I you know so much of my job involves you know reading over things. I I tend to listen to stuff more. So like I'll learn more about like, you know, history and whatnot or other things that interest me through podcasts or, you know, I might, uh, yeah, I might, or listen, listening to something is probably the best medium for that. When it comes to though, to like learning more about um, what I need to do for work, uh, what I need to do for professionally, um, you know, obviously attending, uh, CLEs or other programs, maybe not so much CLEs, I guess more like seminars that come up my way um, are, are a really good way to learn, a really good way to hear what's going on out there. Um, but also um, on a more specific level, I think learning from more experienced attorneys has been um, the best way for me to learn. Uh, when I first started off at SSM, I didn't know a whole lot. And I have a good example of like maybe the best way for me to learn that I think the first time I had to really deal with a, a, a real estate purchase, um, I didn't quite know all the steps and I like bought a book and I don't think I even read through it. I ended up, my, my father-in-law is a real estate attorney, incidentally, um, and I ended up talking to him about it. And that was a lot more insightful to me than the book it was. Um, and then, uh, you know, since then, kind of on the same note, you know, I've, I've worked with outside counsel a lot to uh have them kind of walk me through things whether it was a specific you know maybe a, a general matter or a, you know the giving me the framework to walk through something or if it was actually a specific transaction maybe uh at first you know relying more on them and then over time i've been able to take more of uh take the driver's seat more on those so uh, and also you know learning from peers like yourself i mean i've brought up a lot of uh interesting and unique fact patterns, your way to get your advice on. And that's been really helpful for me to learn and also to share um, some knowledge with uh, the rest of my team. Um, and then lastly, I think uh, learning by doing. Sometimes there's really no other way just to, to put yourself out there. And sometimes you'll make mistakes. But then, I mean, there's plenty of times I think I've done things improperly and I've had to fix them and um, or teach myself how to do them correctly. And it's not always pleasant in the moment, but after the fact, you can look back and see that you, uh, you know, something that seemed completely foreign a couple of years ago is now uh, very familiar. Vikas, since you started at SSM Health seven and a half years ago or so, what has been the biggest shift that you've seen during that time? I guess what we see more are, um, the shift is maybe, investigating maybe different types of arrangements um you see maybe more more telemedicine for example um more uh creative um ways of partnering with healthcare providers or medical groups um i think that's probably uh, that's really stood out a bit um maybe moving away from less traditional models and then the whole you know emphasis on it is to have again like a a, a bigger reach to provide 
better healthcare to more people the best way possible. So I think that's one shift I think I've kind of noticed. It's still ever evolving, I think. I noticed, by the way, uh, I think it was just last week, SSM Health was honored as one of the top places to work in healthcare by Becker's. So mm-hmm. congrats. I, one thing that I, that I learned recently about SSM is that there is, I guess, a, I don't know if it's a policy, um, of, uh, an approach to sort of nonviolent and inclusive language. I was wondering if you could give me any more insight on that. Yeah, so I think that was a, a policy that's been in place for quite a while, um, and it was uh, initiated by um, one of the former um, CEOs who was um, part of the Franciscan Sisters of Mary. It's it's always been really important. I think um, you know people really take it seriously, um, and it it can be as simple as I think in everyday. Uh, practice. It's as simple as, you know, maybe not using certain words that could have a violent connotation, even if they're, uh, you know, not something we typically think of as violent. Um, certain expressions kill two uh, birds with one stone. I and mean, we, we, we try not to use um, examples like that, even though, you know, they might feel innocuous. If you, if you maybe don't say that, you don't say other things that could um, come off inappropriate or maybe send a certain message. Um, so I think on, on one end, and you have that from a, you know, simple everyday mindset, but it, it really flows into how people treat each other. Um, there's a lot of respect, um, within the organization for people at all levels of the organization. So people in my experience seem to treat each other, um, with a lot of respect, um, very courteous. Um, even if maybe you're dealing with a difficult situation, I think there's a culture of understanding, you know, I'm sure we've all worked at places where people, you know, maybe thrive or are kind of put in an environment where there's a yelling and, you know, you've, you, there's a, you're under pressure a lot. And I think our organization really, one of our big benefits is that it doesn't fit within our mission and it's not how people treat each other. And I've seen that people get the same outcomes because we're united in our overall mission. So for me, I think um, I've noticed uh, a, a pretty big benefit of it because I think the language aspect just kind of builds it, it's a way to build into just a general more overarching uh, culture of respect mm-hmm. the past last question what's your favorite strategy or work tool that helps you be the most productive so I always probably come back to just you know I make a I make lists and I do them a, a lot of different ways but Sometimes if I'm feeling really overwhelmed, um, I just make a list of, you know, here's what needs to happen today or here's what needs to happen this week. And the practice of even doing that um, is a big stress reliever and um, a guiding tool to say, you know, these are the things that need to be focused on first. And then I, I can just continually do that. So I've got a couple, well, I've got not a couple, but I've got an ever evolving like to-do list that really helps me stay on top of all the different things I've got to be mindful of. Mm-hmm. Well, Vikas, if, if people want to connect with you, what's the best way to do that? So um, you can find me on LinkedIn at uh, Vikas Sankari. I'm at SSM Health. And then my email is just vikas.sankari at SSM Health. So um, people can reach out to me uh, there. Perfect. Well, thanks, Vikas, for joining me, and thanks to our audience for tuning in. 
If you're interested in signing up for Hall Render's weekly healthcare real estate news briefing and our other articles and content on healthcare real estate, please send me an email at jswider, J-S-W-I-D-E-R, at hallrender.com. <laughs>